Welcome to the Minor Tweak Major Impact Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Protocols.io, an open access repository for science methods, computational workflows, clinical trials, and any instructions and manuals. I am excited to have Dr. Matema Imakubili as the guest for today's episode. Matema is an independent researcher in soil science, but her skills are not limited to soil science alone. She held a position as a behavior change expert on a nutrition project. Matema enjoys action-related development research that solves challenges faced by the rural poor. She studied at the Sukhaini University of Agriculture in Tanzania and now holds a PhD in soil and water management. Her PhD work focused on the role that low soil fertility has in causing increased cyanogenic glucoside levels in cassava in areas affected by a cassava cyanide-related disorder called Konzo. Matema, welcome to the Minor Tweak Major Impact Podcast. Thank you for having me. And hello, everyone. Matima, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got into the field of soil science? My background is I'm a researcher with expertise in soil science. And soil science is something I've studied from my undergraduate, master's, and now my PhD. So I'm basically that. My expertise is not limited to that because I've had a job in behavior change. And so I'm also a behavior change expert and I can do behavior change across all fields. But on that job, I did behavior change, which was related to child feeding, mother feeding and to wash practices. That is sanitation. So that, that is who I am. And how I got into soil science? Well, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting journey. It all happened at undergraduate level. I wanted to do medicine initially, but... I only made it to the School of Agriculture, which is something I've never regretted since. But at the School of Agriculture, I was faced with either joining economics, animal science, crop science, or soil science. But I settled for soil science. Although I had an initial hiccup in it, it was a subject that I, I failed, but I never gave up on it because it was exciting to me. I enjoyed doing it and it's effortless. Although the knowledge and the interest grew as I went forward with it. So that's how I got into soil science. Can you please tell us a little bit what soil science really is all about and also what you were studying for your PhD project? Soil science has many faces. I'll talk about the two main faces that it's known for and that's the study of soil or the improvement of crop production. But it also has another angle to it, which is the environmental aspect. And so it can also be described as the study of soils, to understand them so as to enhance or derive the maximum benefits from their ecosystem functions. So that, that is how I would describe soil science in the simplest form. And what was your PhD project about? My PhD project was very interesting. Well, at least I found it interesting. I tried to link low soil fertility to high cyanogenic glucoside levels in cassava. And the cyanogenic glucoside make cassava toxic, although I'm not saying cassava is toxic for people to consume, but for rural poor communities that are dependent on this food and consume it daily for each one of their meals, 
and their diets are poor as they don't contain sulfur amino acids, which can detoxify the, detoxify the cyanogenic glucosides. It can be a dangerous food, particularly at certain periods. So that's the problem I wanted to look at in my PhD research and find out how soil fertility was contributing to this. Because agronomically, most people only know that drought increases the cyanogenic glucoside in cassava, or the planting of bitter varieties increases is what causes this. But no mention is made of fertility, despite these areas where cyanide detoxication is, is prone being low in soil fertility. So that's what I looked at. In soil science, I would imagine that a lot of the work and experiments are done out on the field. What is the typical process of tracking work and experiments, especially when so much of it is out on the field? Oh, well, I guess uh, tracking experiments, be it in the lab or out there, is, is basically the same. But I guess the traveling to the field can a complication. But once you're at the field, it's just the same as you being in the lab. But, of course, what you do in the field, the kind of analysis you, you can do is it the sample collection, and you're mainly in the field for sample collection, is the activity is what, what is mainly different. Sometimes, if you'll be working, of course, far from your home institution, you may need to partner with another institution where you can carry out the certain work as you're working in the nearby field. So maybe the aspect also of networking, interactions, is more if you have field work as compared to when you're in the lab. So I think that's the, the major difference uh, between the two. Otherwise, data collection, analysis is just the same, but only the activity can differ. Is there any difference, for example, in your notebook when you work on the field or when you work in the lab? Well, I use one notebook uh, regardless of where, where I am. Although I do understand why someone would find it more convenient to separate your the your lab notebook from your field notebook. I mean, the two are exposed to different threats. In the lab, you can spill something on it, and in the field, you can probably crump, crush it or something. But I prefer all the information to be in one notebook because sometimes I may need lab information while I'm in the field. So if all this, and I may need field information again when I'm in the lab. So it's safer to have one notebook. So you have very detailed photographs and graphics in your step-by-step -step instructions. For example, one method for producing rooted cassava plantlets for use in pot experiments includes photos of plants themselves and also a graphic of how the plant should be cut as preparation for rooting. Is taking photos of work something that is very common in your field? I can say taking photos is more of a personal habit and not really a habit that is attached to one field or another. And personally, I find it very, very handy. I could be presenting somewhere and these pictures can add flavor to my presentation. And I could also include them when I'm publishing a paper. But more importantly, I think photos are also a record of an observation that was made. And this record could help explain an anomality in, in the analysis of your data. So they said pictures say more. What's that phrase? Pictures say more than words or something? Pictures say more than words? Yeah, that, that's <laughs> So taking pictures is important. But there's also something else I enjoy doing as uh, making these protocols. Where I missed a picture, 
I can draw it. I can draw it myself. And sometimes a picture may not bring it out as well as a drawing. So it's just a habit that I've, I've developed and I, I guess I do enjoy doing it. So you have those beautiful graphics in your protocols. What kind of tools do you use to create those graphics usually? I simply use the PowerPoint and it's actually just something I'm discovering. The different ways I can manipulate the objects, remove the outline, fuse them together as I imagine what I want to draw, use the different shapes to make maybe a cylinder or to draw a roof. And it's quite, it's something I actually do enjoy then again, although it's something I've just discovered and I'm still improving on that skill. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in making those objects to, to do them on their own. You don't have to copy it from someone. This is something you can do with your laptop and your MacBook. Now that's all you need. And your imagination. Don't forget your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. And I will link your protocol in the description so anybody who wants to check it out can check out the link and see the beautiful graphics I'm talking about. So you're currently working on publishing all your PhD work. Are there any challenges or difficulties you're facing during this process of publishing your work? Well, the challenges... Let me start with a personal challenge, getting myself seated and working. That takes a lot of discipline, but it's something I can say I'm enjoying doing, you know. And I can say I'm thinking much clearer now. I have a better understanding of my work now than when I was carrying, con conducting these experiments during my PhD. I don't know why it had to happen that way. But yeah, and I, and I think also another thing that is, has helped is having at least one of the papers published. It's made the whole process easier for the next and the next and, and, and the next. Yeah, I've had some rejections, of course, but every writer, I suppose, goes through that. But rejections are things that we, we should learn from. For journals that do give comments on why they've rejected your paper, that is very useful. And I would encourage every writer to follow those, those notes, no matter how discouraged you can be. But then I'll go further. When you're rejected and you see nice comments and you know that they will improve your work, I would say send that work back to that very journal because those improvements have been made by them. So that's something I'll just like to say about publishing and the challenges because you owe them something. And for me, that has worked well. And that's how I published my first paper, which had been really rejected by many other journals before I did it right. And do you see any problems with including all these photos and graphics and all these things you made for your methods when you're publishing the papers? Can you include all of them or is there any limitations to that? With papers, you are limited. The paper is only so long and so the methods section, although the, the main section, it's a really important section in a paper, but you cannot put all the details and all the pictures there. In fact, even just placing pictures in a paper, you can only place relevant pictures. But there are some journals which allow you to publish the protocols. Those pictures, those extra notes that you develop still have a place. And I would encourage anyone to take advantage of these protocols publishing websites or, or journals. I think you don't even have to publish with that journal for you to publish your protocol there. Let's take advantage of those and just bring our insight to a protocol in that protocol and publish it.
and we all want to publish, isn't it? It's allowing you to publish it, and so it can be cited. So I think that's one big help which has come to developing protocols and getting them out there. And did you ever experience a minor tweak, major impact moment in your work? Oh, I had so many. I, I, <laughs> and at all levels, I had so many. <laughs> But maybe let me just talk about a few. Okay, so I was potting cassava in a pot experiment. And in a pot experiment, you do not use those stakes. I don't know if, for those who are familiar with, Is it cassava? It's planted using mature stakes, which have a diameter of three centimeters or so, and they're 20 to 30 centimeters long. But th these have nutrients in them, nutrient reserves, which can delay nutrient responses or any other treatment responses that you'd want to observe. And don't forget that pot experiments are usually carried out for a short period of time. For mature stakes, you'd need to carry out the experience for a longer period of time in order for you to observe those treatment effects. So in this experiment, I had to shoot the plantlets. So I was following a protocol which showed me how to, to grow the shoots, but there was something missing there. It did not describe how I should root them for fully. It said I should root them, but it did not describe how and what I would need. So when I started encountering challenges, I now had to go to do some further reading, And this is quite funny, but I could only find that information well written on gardening websites. So that's when I read read up on it. And then I learned how to root the cuttings, any cuttings, not necessarily the cassava cuttings. And that's what worked for me. And I was able to develop those rooted plantlets. Then another minor tweak, major impact that I had was on a weighing balance. You can imagine just planning your experiment and deciding which way in balance will be suitable turned out to be a nightmare. You know, these are things that you don't really put consideration to because, I mean, say the way in balance, you can easily get a way in balance. But I realized that the greenhouse was some distance away and it didn't have an electric port for the kind of way in balance that I needed to use, which was an electrical digital balance. And then I also realized the lab was not going to allow me to be carrying the, the balance from the lab to the greenhouse and back again every day. That could be damaging for the machine. So then I had to think back. What weighing balance do I use, you see? And this planning, you need to do it way before the experiment even begins. I would encourage everyone to visualize as they're planning the experiment. Carefully think how you carry out each step. Imagine everything. So I went out, I thought of getting a bathroom balance. And you can improvise certain lab equipment. But you have to do this carefully. The specifications are unnecessary. Sometimes you may need a certain level of accuracy, and sometimes it may not be necessary for you to have that level of accuracy. So I bought this weighing balance, and I did not bother to check the specifications. It had an accuracy of plus or minus five kgs. And my pots had five kgs of soil. That turned out to be a nightmare. And unfortunately, I only noticed this low sensitivity when the experiment was going on. I would put the same pot on, it would reach three kg. Put the same pot on again onto the scale and it would reach five kg. I was like, what? How can I not be getting consistent results? And my plants were there almost wilting in a panic. I rushed to my supervisor, which is also an important thing. You don't have to suffer alone. Check with the supervisors. They could just have a solution. 
And my supervisor asked me, what sort of balance are you using? Why not try using a mechanical kitchen scale? I was like, what? How does that thing look? Uh, he described it to me. I rushed to the shops and got it. And this machine turned out to be wonderful. My research in the end was a very beautiful research and I did get good results out of it. Maybe another one. Another one was on, because I was looking at cassava and I was using the picket paper method. I had ordered these kits from Australia, from the Australian National University. Although they paid half the price, they covered part of my cost. And I'm very grateful for this because they made it possible for me to do my research. So they sent them and there was an instruction for me to put them in the deep freezer. So I had a little fridge in my room and I put them in the freezer compartment. But one thing I didn't know was that what I had was a freezer and not a deep freezer. So when it was time for me to go to the field, because I wasn't checking on these things. I wasn't opening up the, the, the little lunchbox I'd put them in to check on, on how they were. And I think this is something, a good practice that people should, should develop. If you're keeping samples for a long time, whatever it is, reagents, check on them. Just check on them once in a while, just for you to ensure that everything is okay. I only did it right before traveling to the field. The field, people were waiting for me. And I, and so I had to move. There was no time for me to reorder. Reorder these kids and when will they come? They're coming from Australia. So that was something I was really sad about. But later on, and because when I opened the box, these the, the picket papers had water in them. It's like they had become wet. And I was wondering where the water had come in. But later I got to read about deep freezing and found that there was a diff difference between a deep freezer and a freezer. The freezing process is different. In a deep freezer, the temperature drops are quite rapid and this doesn't allow any changes or internal changes in the sample. But in the freezer, the temperature drops um, more slowly and if it's a piece of meat that has been put in there, it could even deteriorate a bit before the temperature do drop and somehow for picket papers it makes them wet the freezing process so i had to then change i ordered more picket papers and this time i thought where will i put them because i was now just scared of any freezer even a deep freezer i just didn't want to put them in the freezer and so i kept them in the refrigerator the non-freeze compartment and by putting them there i could use them and they were still in their perfect state and this helped me save save money and continue with the rest of the experiment. Wow. I had no idea that there was a difference between a freezer and a deep freezer. I guess that's a it's very good to know that there's a difference. Oh there is. And when I reported it back to the Australian National University, they couldn't understand what had happened. But it's only later that I realized, like, oh no, there is a difference between these freezing processes and one is detrimental for printed papers. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, and um, do you have any method development tips or suggestions for others who are working in soil science? I guess most analysis are already standard procedure. My only caution to them would be take down every observation. When you have an activity, you go to the field or you're in the lab, if that lab notebook that you have is not just about saying, I planted But what are the conditions while you were planting? And when you went to check your field, the field is okay. But what is okay? You know, so it's not only important for you to record the activity, what you did, but also record your observations. And I say this for two reasons. I was looking at my pictures 
And I looked at my field, I planted cassava, and I looked at the field, like, right after planting, I'd taken a picture of it. And it seemed some heavy rains had, had occurred, and some sheet erosion had happened. And I'm looking at it after the experiment is over and done with. And I think, ah, oh, no wonder my yield data was a little bit funny. There was erosion and leaching. So I must have lost some nutrients. And so without that picture, I wouldn't have known that. And now I can explain why my results are a little bit funny. Because you do have to explain anomalities in your results. And so these observations, be it in picture form, because the picture says a thousand words. So take the pictures and write down the observations. And then another reason why I say write down observations is now that I'm writing protocols, I'm still looking at my lab notebook or my field notebook. And then I realize there's a lot I did not write. But now I have to use my memory or look at the pictures. And that's something I now regret because I did not record the observations. And it could be simple things. Usually the things you leave out are things you think they don't count. But later on, they do come to count. So let's take down those observations as well as the pictures, as well as the activities that we're doing each day. My last question, as always, is do you have any favorite science tool? And if you do, why is that your favorite tool? I think with the nightmares I had with the weighing balance, and not only with, the, with that minor tweak weighing balance issue I described, I mean, I had to carry out a weighing balance, a smaller one, in the field. Because the institution where I was working, they didn't have a weighing balance. I guess every soil scientist at one time or another will be forced to buy a weighing balance. <laughs> so to me, a weighing balance is an important tool to a source, to every soil scientist. Because you have to weigh soil samples. You have to weigh plant samples. You cannot escape weighing if you're in soil science. So a weighing balance. And I think it's the first instrument that you learn to use in soil science, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the first one and the most important one. <laughs> yeah. Matema, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it all. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. 